0: Amen. Well, thanks for entering into that time of worship and uh, prayer. Can you believe it was almost exactly four years ago today that the world just got turned upside down? Isn't it crazy to think about that? Like, and, and remember like, how it was supposed to go, right? Uh, we're going to take uh, just a couple weeks to flatten the curve. Like the longest two weeks of my life, right? That was that, that's what that was. Uh, and in the midst of all the upheaval and transitions, as a, as a church, as a staff team, we were trying to figure out, like, how do we keep people connected, and how do we keep serving our community, and how do we still be a church when we're all kind of scattered and distributed? And uh, we kept pivoting and kept pivoting and kept pivoting. And it felt like every 12 to 36 hours, we had to pivot again and pivot again and pivot again. In fact, around the church on the staff team, we have outlawed the use of the word Pivot. We are never pivoting ever again, or pivotation, or pivotization, no version, no variation of the word pivot is ever allowed to be used in any conversation ever again. We'll adapt, we'll adjust, we'll change the plans, we're never pivoting ever, ever again. Crisis, at various degrees, requires that we manage it, right, that we respond. Here's my question, what do you do when crisis hits? How do you respond? Some of us go into like roll up our sleeves and figure it out and fix it mode. Some of us just kind of stay in bed and pull the sheets over our heads and hope it goes away. Right? You know you people? Yeah. Uh, But crisis can do a number of things to us. And in the psalm that we, uh, that uh, Elizabeth read earlier, Psalm 63, David is in crisis when he writes this psalm. And the crisis is sort of a setting. David writes this. He says, listen, it's actually, uh, the, head, the heading of it is this. It says, there it is, uh, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So David is in the desert of Judah. This is likely written when his own son had thrown a coup and it worked long enough to drive him off the throne, out of Jerusalem, and into the desert of Judah. David is in serious crisis. It doesn't get much worse than that, than your own child, sort of booting you off the throne, and he's on the run. And and while David is in the midst of what could be an all-consuming crisis, do you know what David does? He's not just managing the crisis with God in the background. He's not out playing golf with his buddies, hoping the crisis goes away. While David is in the midst of one of the biggest crises of his life, he is writing a song of worship to God to put God at the center of his life rather than the crisis at the center of his life. To put God at the center of his life rather than the crisis at the center of his life. How does that happen? Only as we worship. As we've been doing this Hungry for God series the last couple weeks, there's a very natural and somewhat cynical question that I wanna address. It's kind of lingering behind the background. And the question, as we talk about cultivating a hunger for God, is this why bother? Why bother cultivating a hunger for God when so many more other things are so much more concrete, right? Like uh, other things like uh, chasing, I know what it feels like to chase after money control, applause, approval, success, independence, leave me alone, comfort and convenience. I know what that looks like, right? That's super concrete. It's super clear. I get it. Like it's, it's some of you like some of you come to church because someone drags you here. Or you kind of like the love your neighbor stuff, but the God stuff, the spiritual stuff feels like it's kind of super far away and super far off. And why bother? It seems like a lot of work when I know what this looks like. And when I get it, when I get control or affirmation or approval or get comfort or convenience, I know what that feels like. Why should I bother chasing after, hungering for God when no one else is doing it? And that kind of feels good when I kind of feel successful or free or have control, right? Like, that's true for all of us, no, no matter kind of where you are spiritually. These other things are more concrete, more more like more, more accessible, and David gives us a whole bunch of good reasons why it's worth it to do the work to cultivate a hunger for God. First off, as, as David is there in the desert, it's not the first time he's been in crisis or trouble. David's life is marked with all kinds of drama, 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 drama. When he's like about a teenager... God tells him and anoints him, you're going to be king over all Israel. Just one problem. There's already a king over Israel. He's not too happy about it. And so David spends years and years and years of his life on the run from King Saul. And then he gets to be king. And he's king for a number of years. And then his own son throws a coup. Drama, drama, drama. Crisis, crisis, crisis. You know what crisis does to people, right? You've seen it. You've known people whose life have been full of challenge after challenge after challenge. Heartache after heartache after heartache. You know what it does to you right? When you're in crisis, when there's hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. It can make you resentful, cynical, bitter. Or it can make you wiser and more resilient. It really all depends on what you're going to do while you're in the crisis. David's life is full of ups and downs, and he is by no means perfect. He makes some of the most egregious errors in all the biblical history. I mean, he, just is a, he makes mess after mess after mess. But one of the things that David does really, really well is he keeps coming back to a hunger for God over and over and over again, even after he totally blows it. He keeps coming back to, I'm going to cultivate, I'm going to press in, I'm going to be a man who is hungry for God. And in a life full of crisis and pain and setback, what makes David's life beautiful is he cultivates a hunger for God even when it's miserable Even when life is hard In fact, David wrote this whole like Many of the psalms we have in the scriptures David has taught more people to pray Than any other human being in history More people have learned how to pray from these psalms Than any other book, any other place, any other person That is a fruitful life Not a cynical life That is a life that is generative That's generous That blesses other people Even in the midst of crisis and heartache So why bother hungering for God? Well, if David had wasted his energies hungering for lesser things in the midst of all the challenges, his life would become more resentful rather than more fruitful. If David had hungered and thirsted for comfort in the desert, if he'd been jealous or resentful, why am I out here? Why, I gotta get back to where on the throne, I was in the palace, I had lots of good food to eat. If David had wasted his energies clamoring after lesser things in the desert when things weren't going his way, he would have ended up having a resentful and bitter and cynical life rather than a fruitful life that blessed all kinds of people. That's one really good reason why it's worth it for you and me to do the work to cultivate a hunger for God. But then throughout the whole psalm, as David reflects on, on God's character, he gives us multiple more reasons to sort of press in to God and why he's pressing into God and trusting in God, even in the midst of the crisis. Here's the opening uh, lines of Psalm 1 again. It says, David writes, You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and your glory. So, why does David? hunger and thirst for God when he's in this heartache and in these difficult seasons, well, he's seen God in the sanctuary. He's beheld his power and his glory. He's seen the Lord. He knows how good God is, how powerful God is. He knows that in the midst of the mess and the crisis, there's one who has the power to redeem the mess and redeem the crisis. There is one person who's got the power to step into his heartache, his difficulty, and bring good out of it. And how David's experienced this, how David has known that is he's stepped in the sanctuary. He's coming to worship. He stepped into worship and met God in worship over and over and over again. As he's lifted his voice with God's people, he has met God's power, God's glory, God's goodness. It has awakened him to who God is. So David meets God in the sanctuary to prepare him to trust him in the desert because that's where we're all gonna go eventually, right? David meets God in the sanctuary, meets him, sees his power, worships him, and says, that's the God that's gonna get me through the desert. Not every week does he behold God's power in the sanctuary. Not every week is it life changing. But David has experienced what many of us here have experienced. That if you just keep showing up, if you just keep showing up, eventually you have an experience where God meets you, right? Not every week does God meet every person. But every week God meets someone right here, Chatham Community Church. You've experienced, right? There's the, the, the week that the song, a phrase from a song just pops into your life. Like, oh man, I needed that. Where the sermon feels like it's just for you by the way it was, in case you're wondering. Where where the message feels like it's just directed at you or a phrase or word. Or someone in the lobby that you meet over coffee becomes a dear friend. Or someone prays for you. It's a turning point in your story. Not every week is a transformative, magical, wonderful experience. But every week someone here has an encounter with the living God that equips them to go out there and live faithfully before the Lord. Because when we show up, God shows up. And if you've been out of church for a while, if you've been out of worship for a while, if you've been kind of missing this whole thing, we're so glad that you're here. That's one reason to keep coming back. Keep coming back. Please, welcome, 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 welcome back. God meets us in community in a way that he doesn't meet us on our own. It's just different. And so so David meets the Lord in the sanctuary. Beholds his power and his glory to equip him to live faithfully in the desert. Now, of course, David has other stories, too, of meeting God, like out in the battlefield and other experiences of of connecting with God. And so what David does is he sort of remembers and recites, I have met God before, so this crisis is not going to be all-consuming. I can trust God even in the midst of my challenges. Many of us have a catalog of stories of meeting God, right? Many of us have a, have a catalog of how God has met us in the past. It's just when crisis comes, it's so easy to forget the past, right? When crisis comes, it's easy to forget how God's met you in the past. So one of the most important spiritual disciplines for those of us who are Christians, who have met Jesus, is we've got to build a catalog, a bank of these stories. How has God met you in the past so that the next crisis doesn't overwhelm you or overrun you? It brings you back to the Lord. So that's the call for many of us. But some of you don't have those stories, some of you don't have much of a church experience, or much of a faith experience. Or, or for, for those of you, again, faith been like in the background. Or you went to church, but it was like Vegas, what happened there, stayed there. Here's the deal. When you're in crisis, you don't need a wallpaper faith. You need a God who's full of glory and power. That's the kind of God you need, and that's the kind of God who's there. So if you don't have your own stories of how God has met you in the past, we're so glad that you're here. Here's what the scripture invites you to. First off, the, the scriptures are full of stories of God's faithfulness. And you're invited to borrow the scripture stories. David, Moses, Abraham, all kinds of people, all kinds of messes. They were invited to sort of build our lives around the God's faithfulness and those stories, the same God that came through for David will come through for you. So you're invited to borrow those biblical stories. And then I want to, get, I want to invite you to get to know these people, this community. It's a, it's a community full of beautiful, wonderful, normal, messy people. That's what people are. But there are so many stories all around you, so many stories all around you of how God has moved in lives all around you. Get to know some people. And if you don't have stories of your own, of God's faithfulness, borrow theirs. They'll be glad to share them with you. I want to invite you to press in, to remember God's faithfulness, to know God's faithfulness, to trust God's faithfulness, because when you're in crisis and you don't want to be swallowed up in crisis, you want to put God at the center of your life, not the crisis at the center of your life. Now, of course, David has a number of exclamations of how he's going to celebrate God. The next line, verse 3, says this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David's gonna respond in worship and in praise like we just did. In fact, David has a whole litany of ways he's gonna respond to God while he's in the desert, even before God shows up, even before God comes through, before God does anything, David's confident that God's gonna show up. So David's like, here's all the way I'm gonna respond to you, God. I'm gonna, my lips are gonna glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands. I will think of you through the long, hard, dark, anxious Nights, those of you who have a hard time sleeping, what if your thoughts turn to God rather than your worries? Wouldn't that be a great gift to you and those around you? I will sing to you and I will cling to you. I will hold on to you. What do you do if you're in a crisis and you don't want to be swallowed up by the crisis? You hunger for God by worshiping God who is bigger than the crisis and whose love is better than life. That's how you don't get swallowed up by a crisis. That's what David shows us. That's the invitation. So pulling way, way, way back. The question we asked earlier, why bother cultivating a hunger for God? Whether you've been a Christian your whole life and you've been going through this and doing this thing or this is your first time ever or first time back in a long time, why bother hungering for God? David gives us a whole lot of reasons. One, God's power and glory is greater than anything else we might hunger for. Like, you chase after security, independence, leave me alone, do my own thing. You chase after applause or approval or likes. You chase after control or security. That doesn't have power and glory to redeem your sins, to redeem your brokenness, to forgive you, and then to bring good out of any mess you've got. Only God's power and glory does. God's love is better than life. My small group love this one. God satisfies as with the richest of foods. Can you imagine satisfaction? Finding satisfaction in God's great love and God's goodness. In God's glory. Chasing after other things is like drinking salt water. It satisfies temporarily. You're just thirsty again five minutes later. You get some likes, you get some love, you get some money, you get some security, you get left alone for a few minutes, and man, it's great. It feels great for just a minute, but man, God's love satisfies like nothing else can. David says God is our help. That God, God's right hand upholds us. He is, comf- he is close to those who are in need and faithful and just to walk alongside us. And so we cultivate a hunger for God, not just in crisis. We cultivate a hunger for God in good times and in bad times. We press into the character of God, the goodness of God, the amazing grace of God. We ask God to fill us with more and more of himself. David did not do this perfectly, but he did it generally, regularly. He coming back to it over and over and over again. The result was one of the most impactful lives in human history because he had a hunger and a thirst for God. But several hundred years later, we get, a better, we get a better David, a truer king, a king who will reign forever. And when this king shows up, he knows all these things that are true about God and more. And this king, this perfect David, he's not satisfied with just chasing after applause. Great crowds come after him. He's like, I'm not here for the crowds. I'm not here to people please and make people happy with me. He's not here to be left alone, to be, just do his own thing. He knows his life is not his own. He surrenders his life. He says, I am here to love God and love my neighbor. I'm here to bless people and serve people, not just, not just to be left alone. Doesn't chase after money. Doesn't chase after control. He knows control is an illusion. He surrenders control over and over and over again, all the way to a cross. He is so confident in the goodness of God that he goes to the cross just trusting in a promise that the Father said to him that if he was willing to surrender all the way to the cross, that God the Father would raise him from the dead. That's how confident this perfect king Jesus was in the goodness of God. He is the perfect king. And in the night of his greatest crisis, when he's about to be betrayed and brutally executed, He's not consumed with the crisis. He's worshiping God the Father. And he's thinking about his disciples, and he's thinking about y'all, us. And he leaves us these concrete tangible signs of his grace and his mercy and his love for you, so that you might use these sort of concrete tangible signs as a way to cultivate a hunger for the living God, on the night Jesus was betrayed in the midst of his greatest crisis, not being consumed by the crisis or the pain or the anxiety, he took ordinary bread and broke it. He said, This is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. He said, This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Today, as we enter into our time of communion, we step into the meal that Jesus gave us and we ask, Oh God, would you give us a hunger for you? Not all, of us, not all of us have a hunger for God naturally or intuitively some of us have resisted it some of us have struggled with it some of you are burdened with sin and regret and shame some of you are so cynical and sort of shut down please, oh please, please, please the Lord has so much more for you open yourself up to amazing grace and watch what the Lord might do open yourself up to amazing grace and see what the Lord has done let's move to our time of communion we're going to do it a little bit differently today we're going to move to these stations the bread is gluten free the cup is grape juice so everyone's invited We're going to invite you to get the elements and then bring them back to your seats. And then we're just going to invite you to take it whenever you want. We we usually eat and drink together, but today, just whenever you want, however you want, we're going to invite you to go and get the meal, bring it back to your seat, pray over it, sit with it, and do whatever you got to do with the Lord, and then eat and drink whenever you are ready. As we move to our time of communion... This table and this meal is for anyone and everyone who has declared that Jesus is Lord over their lives. If you have declared that to a body of believers somewhere, if you've given your life over to Jesus, we invite you to these tables to come, get the elements, and eat and drink. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus to be who saves you, if you think you're still saving yourself, if you don't even think you need saving, we're so glad you're here. We just ask you to pass on this meal and consider what God has done, put on flesh, given his life. To forgive your sins and my sins. That nothing would stand in the way of you knowing the goodness of God, God's power and glory, His love that is better than life. The prayer room is still open. The, prayers, the, the prayer ministers are there over in that t- corner. As we go to the tables, some of you need to go right past the tables and go get prayer. Some of you today is the day that you want to trust in Christ. You want to put your hope in Christ, your faith in Christ. You're, you've done everything else. It's time to come back to Jesus or come to Jesus for the first time. Those folks, be glad to pray for you and with you and then come and eat the meal with us. Let me pray for us as we move now t- into our time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us to the God whose love is better than life. We pray now as we go to the stations that you would open up our hearts, open up our spirits, open up our minds to your amazing grace, your power, your love. No matter where we've been, no matter who we've been, you love us, you're for us, you are with us, and you invite us to the table. You invite us to let your love have the last word of our lives not our own rebellion, not our own mistakes, not someone else's sin against us. Lord Jesus, let nothing else have the last word over us. Let nothing else dominate our hearts and our minds, our landscapes more than a hunger for the living God. With these elements, usher us into the throne room of grace. We pray in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen, amen, and amen.